morning, everyone. So we are continuing in our series in the book of Proverbs. We started it last week and looked at the first seven verses, kind of the preamble of the book of Proverbs, and we're going to continue this morning by looking at the rest of chapter one. So uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter one, you can find that if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you um, or underneath you, and you can find this on page 527. Proverbs chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 7 through 33. Beginning in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will Pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Let's pray and ask for God's help before we dive into our study. Oh God, as you say in your word in the book of James, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. We thank you that that is your heart, your character, your willingness to give us wisdom when we need it. We are desperately needy for your wisdom We are blind and foolish without you. We are helpless and hopeless without you. You alone are endless joy. May we be your people who cling to Christ, your wisdom incarnate, your wisdom in bodily form. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us all as we study your word now to be attentive and receptive to what you have to say. You don't intend to merely fill our minds with facts or information as we study your word. You want to change us from the inside out. So please prepare our hearts for that. I pray that we would be soft and receptive and not hard and resistant to your wisdom, to your goodness, cynical and suspicious and skeptical. I pray that we would be, that we would know your character and your goodness and that we would welcome what you have to say to us this morning and how you want to change us. You made the world and everything in it. You made it good, good, very good. The mess that it's in is a result of sin and turning away from you and spurning your wisdom. So may we not continue down that path in any way. To reject you is to reject joy, to reject life, to reject goodness and peace and grace and everything that we need. So Lord, help us to turn to you and welcome your work today. In Jesus' name, amen. So God created the world. He created it in infinite wisdom. He created it good, good, very good, like it says in Genesis. So to rebel against that good design, supposedly wise in our own eyes, is ultimate folly. Rebelling against, resisting, ignoring, kind of sticking your fingers in your ears to God's wisdom, his will, his ways, is futile, ultimately. You can't get home by going the wrong way. Or to kind of change the metaphor, like if you've gotten the wrong, you remember those word problems that had like several steps in school? Kids, you have any of those word problems? You're like, can't wait to get back to school so you can do more word problems, right? No. So if you've gotten the wrong sum early on, it's never going to help to just press on and do the rest of the problem. If you get something wrong at an early step, it's going to affect everything after it. You have to go back and get on the right path. So true and lasting good and life and peace and joy are simply not found apart from God. You cannot ignore or rebel against God's reality and think it will go well for you. Like exhibit A, the devil. He is the ultimate fool. Like, what's his future like? You can't ignore God's reality and his wisdom and think it will go well for us. Rebelling against God, ignoring his wisdom is kind of like, you know, ignoring gravity. Sorry, I was going to use a different illustration. Um, like sawing off the limb that supports you. Or, you know, you can go ahead and ignore gravity and jump off a cliff and, you know, feel the wind blowing through your hair for a couple of seconds, and then the harsh reality of the ground is going to meet you really quickly. So this kind of thing, maybe it's clear and obvious, like, duh, like, okay, yeah, I get it, I get it. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, like, all the time, don't we have this impulse to stick our fingers in our ears when it comes to God's wisdom in exchange for the so-called wisdom of the world the flesh, our sinful nature, and the devil. Like there's this deep and stubborn impulse in all of us to resist God's wisdom and think that we know better what's good for us. So Proverbs is here to make us wise unto salvation and to root out that deadly impulse. Let's pay attention, brothers and sisters. Like church, we need to pay attention, not just this morning, but the whole way through this series. God wants to give us wisdom for our good. So let's pay attention. So this morning, five points. Um, first point, fear. Okay, we're gonna, we, we did verses one to seven last week. Verse seven is like a hinge. 
It's also like the centerpiece of this book or kind of the motto of this book as we considered last week. So we need to start here before we look at 8 to 33. So first point, um, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools, on the other hand, despise wisdom and instruction. So this is like the central thesis, the motto, you could say. Um, And so we need to just review and kind of reinforce, like we can't lose sight of this because this needs to be like a banner over the whole book as we study through it. What does this mean? What is the fear of the Lord? Well, it doesn't mean terror. It doesn't primarily mean even fear of judgment. Although those who know God and are um, those who have received his wisdom know that apart from his mercy, we deserve his judgment, condemnation. It's only the mercy of God that makes it possible for us to know God and be reconciled to him. He's holy, we're unholy. He's righteous, we're unrighteous. We can't climb a ladder of religiosity to heaven. We can't atone for our own sins. We need a savior to rescue us, a sin bearer to atone for our sins. Jesus is just that savior and sin bearer. And when you turn from your sin and folly, stop running from God, trust in Jesus, stop trying to work your way into God's favor as if it could be earned, you trust in Jesus as your righteousness, then the perfect love of God, like it says in 1 John, casts out all fear. The love of God demonstrated at the cross, Jesus taking our place, taking our punishment. There is nothing left but love. There's no punishment left to fear. There's no wrath left. All the righteous wrath of God toward our sin, toward all that's wrong in this world, toward our evil choices, it's been absorbed by Jesus. So there's nothing left but love. So even the Lord's discipline, his training, his correction, as he teaches and shapes us, it's all love. Like it says in Hebrews 11, and Hebrews 11 is actually quoting Proverbs. We'll get to that passage later. So this fear of the Lord is not fear of punishment. For one in covenantal relationship with God, through the reconciling work of Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this fear is a healthy and holy reverence and awe and respect. So I I recently read an article by this, by a British scholar named Michael Reeves, um, and it's entitled, How to Grow in the Fear of the Lord. And in it, he's quoting um, an old... Uh, theologian Thomas Boston, from a sermon on Proverbs 28.14. Proverbs 28.14 says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart, that's the opposite of fearing the Lord, will fall into calamity. So here's what Boston said, and then what Reeves comments um, afterwards. Slavish fear dreads nothing but hell and punishment. Filial fear, okay, Filial means child to parent, okay, having to do with a child to a parent. Dreads sin in itself. The one is mixed with hatred of God, the other with love to him. The one who looks on him as a revenging judge, the other as a holy father, to whose holiness the heart is reconciled and the soul longs to be conformed. So, huge difference between the fear of the Lord here in Proverbs 1-7, and slavish fear or terror. Then Michael Reeves comments, he says, the fear of God is a strong biblical theme, thus stands as a superb theological guard dog. It stops us from thinking that we are made for either passionless performance or a detached knowledge of abstract truths. It backs us into the acknowledgement that we are made to know God in such a way that our hearts tremble at his beauty and splendor that we are remade at the deepest level. It shows us that entering the life of Christ involves a transformation of our very affections so that we begin actually to despise and not merely renounce the sins we once cherished and treasure the God we once abhorred. So this is the heart of the fear of the Lord. Another way of understanding what the fear of the Lord is is to see the parallel line in verse 7, the second line, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Kind of helps us understand the first line. So when you fear the Lord, 
you know he's God and you're not. You know he's wise and you are not without his wisdom. You know you need wisdom and grace and help and he above all, above all others can give it. So it means we have a soft heart toward his wisdom and knowledge of him. We're open, we're meek, we're ready to receive his wisdom and instruction from his word and from others who speak his word to us. So the foolish scoffer has a hard heart. Nobody's gonna tell me anything that I don't already know. He's wise in his own eyes. He doesn't welcome God's wisdom from the word, from others. And so that kind of hardness, that kind of flippancy, that kind of arrogance actually shuts you off from the wisdom and knowledge of God. So again, this is hugely important to keep in mind as we go through because this is like the motto of the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is not just a way of thinking. It's a right relationship, a covenantal relationship to a person. This knowledge is not merely intellectual knowing, but relational knowing. So there's love and respect that's represented here. And so it's the beginning of wisdom in the sense that it's the first and the controlling principle. It's the doorway to wisdom, and it's also the foundation to a wise life that we build on that foundation. It's the threshold, and it's the path. We could say it that way. So my prayer is that we've all crossed the threshold, and now let's walk this path, okay? It begins by hearing, tuning our ears, and not forsaking the word of the Lord. So point number two, forsake not. Look at verses eight and nine. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. So the book of Proverbs began, you know, father to son. You hear my son, my son, my son. Doesn't mean that it's only applicable to boys um, because certainly even at the end of this chapter, it's everyone. And passage that is directly um, spoken of to a son is picked up in Hebrews 12 that says the Lord disciplines those he loves and it's referring to everybody, okay? So just obviously know that. But this book began as like this training course in wisdom for the young in the covenant community. So the norm would have been Deuteronomy 6, taking place in homes, fathers and mothers diligently teaching Torah to their children and talking about God's word when they sit in the house and when they walk on the way and when they lie down and when they rise up. So you may not have had this in your home growing up, but if you're a Christian, you likely had some spiritual father or mother who taught you what it means to trust and follow Jesus. And certainly, you can provide this for others, whether it's your children in your home or when you teach or disciple others. Or if you're volunteering, we have like, I think there's 35 adults and 11 teen volunteers for BBS this week. So you're doing just this, this week. So if you're a father or mother, consider This is actually really cool, I think. The intended results of your instruction and teaching. Okay, we're going to see it here, this garland and pendant thing. If you're a child, children in the room, you need to hear what verse 9 means, okay? It's like, for me, I'm 48 years old, and I've just blown right by this over and over again. Not until this week did I realize how cool this is. So your father's instruction and mother's teaching are intended to be a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. What does that mean? What is a graceful garland? It's like a victor's wreath. In Proverbs 9, this word is actually in parallel with a beautiful crown. Okay, how about the pendants? Like, I'll get to the meaning in a second here. Um, They're like metals around the neck a symbol of standing, honor, esteem. Like think of medals for finishing at the top of your swim meet. I know some of you kids in this room have some of those. Or running, and you get the medal for being a top finisher. Or the Olympics, and you stand on the podium and you get the medal. 
Here's the point. God's wisdom mediated through parents, whether in a nuclear family or the family of God, the church, is aimed at crowning our lives with honor and making us spiritually victorious, like more than a conqueror. Like God, by his wisdom, wants to make you and me into beautiful, attractive, compelling, victorious people. Wise, noble people. Remember the definition of wisdom from last week. Wisdom is skill or competence for living life as God intended. Like when we learn that path and it starts to like characterize who we are, God clothes us with his grace and glory. So don't blow off his wisdom. Don't ignore it. Receive it. Like, let's go off with the pettiness, off with banality, triviality, like off with the foolishness and ugliness and stains. God's wisdom embodied in the person of Jesus Christ makes us noble and compelling people. So let's cast off foolishness and sin and darkness. Like, think of Hebrews 12. If you're going to run this race that's set before you, throw off the weights that slow you down and the sins that entangle you. The darkness, the deceit, the lies, and let's put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we are going to be the light of the world that God intends us to be, reflecting the noble honorable light of the Lord Jesus. God's wisdom is aimed at beautifying our lives. Like, isn't that cool? Why would we, like, you know, back to the YouTube shorts. I'm not, okay. In moderation, whatever, okay? But if life is just banality and we're bored with God's wisdom and we're in awe of what we see on the internet, like, that's dangerous. Because God wants to beautify our lives and make us, like, strong and noble and dignified and victorious spiritually. So, parents, let this inspire in you Deuteronomy 6 faithfulness, like, inspire you in your calling to keep going with this in view, praying that this would be true for your kids as they grow. Children, let this encourage you and motivate you to receive God's wisdom. And may we all, we all need this, so we all should be freshly stirred up to seek and welcome God's wisdom, becoming the noble, wise people he intends us to become. So this path begins by forsaking the wrong path, a foolish path, and those who try to disciple you to destruction. So point number three, forsake. So first it was fear, then it was forsake not, like receive the wisdom, now it's forsake. Verses 10 to 19, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason, like Sheol, which is the grave, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit why would you do this? Because of gain. Promised gain, right? We'll find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us. We'll all have one purse. So here we go. First message of this book of Proverbs after the preamble of one to seven and then the thing with the parents, you know, garlands and pendants, drum roll. Brrr, first message, don't join a gang. Well, okay, thank you. Might seem a little anticlimactic. But don't write it off too quickly. Like, we all know that there is such a thing as groupthink, mob mentality, crowd psychology, pack mentality, herd mentality. It goes by many different names, and we can all fall into it. We certainly see it in the political realm. We saw it during COVID. Certainly lots of seemingly educated adults love to pile on and join mobs online to viciously bash and cancel people. So we've actually seen this dynamic many times. And I don't think just 
you know, in recent years, like, I know I participated in these dynamics. I stole stuff when I was a kid. Did foolish stuff as a kid when I was with a group that I would never have done had I been by myself, and certainly not if I was with some people who were wise. You probably did it too. And kids, teens in the room, you're, you may be tempted to do such things. When there's a group doing stupid things and they recruit you to join them, why is it so hard to say no? Like, why do we often say, why do we just go along with the flow? It's because of fear of friends, right? We fear the rejection, the disapproval, the scorn of our friends being on the outside. So do you see how fear of the Lord is what enables you to walk this path when you need to say no to folly? Fear of the Lord needs to be bigger than fear of friends. Forsake that fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God wants to wisely protect you and others from the damage you could do to others, to yourself. Bullying, locker room talk, treating or using women or men as objects to be used for personal pleasure. Theft, pursuing unjust gain of any sort when you're just out for you. Any scam or scheme where you're taking advantage of others, benefiting at, at their expense, stepping on others in order to succeed or gain an advantage, getting ahead by leaning on your own understanding and devices. Like in God's eyes, you might as well be a thug in a gang. Let me bring it even a little closer to home for all of us here. You might not ever resort to physical violence in any area of your life. You maybe never have. But gossip and slander and a critical spirit make you a character assassin. Or me. I'm not like standing here like you all. <laughs> it's any of us. And it means that we're wandering into the dangerous path of fools. Like, have you ever noticed how insecurity, failure in your own life weaknesses, it can put a magnifying glass in your hands to see the failures and weaknesses in others. What you're doing is you're trying to shift the spotlight. It's really uncomfortable to see our own failures. So if we can just kind of shift the spotlight out onto them, it makes us feel a little better. But you know, the success, the blessings of other people oftentimes kick up this resentful envy and we become like prosecuting attorney, judge, and jury for that person's sin and weaknesses, there's like a violence, like a bloodthirstiness underneath. You're lying in wait for a misstep so that you can pounce. Once a misstep is made, gossip will recruit others to join you in that character assassination. It's like a gang. A critical spirit can turn a conversation into a bloodbath as you take swings with your verbal sword to cut people down to size. That is a dead-end street. Like, come join us. Like, no, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Verse 15. Hold back your foot from their paths. There's two paths. Herschel read it from Psalm 1, right? Don't listen, don't follow, don't obey, rebel, resist. Violence is in vain. There is no true gain there, only loss. Verse 16, for their feet actually run to evil. They make haste to shed blood, for in vain is a net spread in the sight of a bird. Like, here, I'm going to trap you now. <laughs> like, how, how's that going to work for a bird? No, I'm not that stupid. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who's greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So do you see in verses 18 and 19, this has been noted before, I don't know who it originated with, but the boomerang effect of sin. 
like, boom, you know, like it comes around back at you. The path of folly, like rejecting God's wisdom, the path of folly is the path of shoot yourself in the foot of the soul. It's the path of the curse. When you listen to and are discipled by folly, you choose your own undoing. You choose death. Remember, wisdom is skill and competence to live life as God intended it. He knows what's best for us. He made us. He loves us. It's rejecting all that that's made this world the mess that it is. So when you walk away from God, like you ignore his wisdom and walk away from him, you're actually sawing off the branch that supports you. We do it to our own detriment. Sin isn't just wrong, it's dumb. And listen, again, I'm not trying to just like, I'm like, I need this reminder, you need this reminder, like, we're so foolish, we keep, you know, Mark said, Romans 7, I do what I don't, I'm like, why did I do that again? So we need God's wisdom, right? We need God's wisdom. Give us wisdom. God wants to give us wisdom. Like, okay, this is great. Help me. I mean, this is all over the Bible. God appeals in the book of Ezekiel a couple times. Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you die? Like, do you see the heart of God? Do you see how crazy we are? Like, I'm just going to go headlong to death. Why does Jesus need to say, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or Proverbs 8, 35 and 36, for whoever finds me, wisdom speaking, she, she's personified multiple times in the book, so Proverbs 8, 35 and 36 says, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. So what should we do? Point number four. Turn and live. Verses 20 to 23. Wisdom, again personified here as lady wisdom, cries aloud in the street, in the markets. She raises her voice at the head of the noisy streets. She cries out at the entrance of the city gates. Here she is, lady wisdom, out in the street, in the marketplace, where the people are. She's not tucked away in some ivory tower, only available to the scholars, PhDs. She goes out like a street preacher, calling people to her, not passively, but actively pursuing. Lady Wisdom is blue collar and white collar. She's setting up shop where real life happens, where the action is. And she's calling us out of the alley of the fools, that dark alley that leads to nowhere, onto the king's highway, out of darkness, into his marvelous light, away from violence and selfish ambition into gracious beauty and glory. She speaks, verse 22, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? So she's speaking to everybody because the simple need, they're just kind of like naive and, and they're in danger of going down the wrong path. The fool is further down the path and the scoffer is hardened. But she hasn't given up on any of them. She's calling out to all of them. If you whether you're simple or a scoffer or a fool, like wherever you are on the continuum, like if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. This is the heart of this passage. Verse 23. Following folly is essentially repenting of God. Okay, turning from him turning away from wisdom, turning away from the fear of the Lord. A passage that I love that I think is just a perfect illustration of this is Jeremiah 2, 11 to 13, where it says, my people have changed, exchanged their glory for that which does not profit. I mean, just stop right there. What does God want to do? What does God want for us? Profit. 
It's not talking about money. It's talking about like real spiritual benefit. Like going anywhere else for your wisdom and your life and your refuge and your comfort and your strength and your, like, it's not going to benefit you. My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. So God actually calls heaven and earth into the courtroom and goes, look at this. This is crazy. Be appalled. This is a shocking case. My people, verse 13, have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's how God defines evil there. So we're all thirsty. Isn't it foolish to try to slake your spiritual thirst at the rusty, nasty, dregs bottom of a broken cistern that can't hold any water? When there is a overflowing, cold, clean, clear, crisp fountain of living waters just bubbling up for your soul's satisfaction. Like how insane is it to be down there when you could be up here? So what do you need to do? Repent. Get out of the cistern and believe. Drink at the fountain. So this is Lady Wisdom calling us. It's God's gracious voice in our lives to turn from our folly, get out of the cistern, to run to the fountain, trust, not in ourselves, not leaning on our own understanding, not fearing people and what they're going to say, but fearing you, oh Lord, you are awesome and wonderful and good, and I want to drink your grace and truth and wisdom. Like, we're always doing this, okay? So, So obviously conversion is... For the first time, getting out of the cistern and drinking at the fountain, Jesus is the living water and he gives life to our souls, right? But this is also a daily thing. We're always turning from and turning to. If I turn to God's substitutes, functional saviors, I'm turning away from God just necessarily. And so wisdom calls me, the spirit of wisdom calls me, spirit of God convicts me, And I need to respond. I need to be decisive. So this passage is calling us to act. We need to respond this morning. So I remember talking with a young man years, years ago. Um, His father had abandoned their family. He was wrestling with the emptiness of his father's talk because he'd kind of been through the cycle several times with his dad. There were sometimes tears, but they proved to be empty. And he gave me an illustration that I've never forgotten. He said something like this, you know, let's say a man has cheated on his wife and repeatedly repeatedly neglected his family. His son calls him and the man is traveling on a train and he's traveling to visit the mistress. And let's say the father tells his son how sorry he is He's tearful, he's sorry, he's apologizing for all the wrong and the hurt done to the family. If the son then asks, are you going to get off the train and come home? What does repentance look like? Do you see how it necessarily comes down to choices? So at the spiritual level, like for all of us, like James 4 has a lot of sympathetic vibration with wisdom and and the book of Proverbs, we are shown with some bracing clarity the decisiveness of true repentance, okay? So in James 4, James is likening our spiritual idolatry, idolatry to spiritual adultery, being unfaithful to God. So look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Do we have that on the slide? There we go. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Like, whoa, that's pretty serious. 
But look at the heart of God here when he calls us to repentance. Do you suppose it's to no, no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in you? I want you back. I love you, I want you back. Verse six, he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud. Don't despise wisdom. Fear the Lord. I don't want to. I don't want to oppose God. I don't want him to oppose me. He will give grace to the humble, repentant one who turns like, I, oh, here I am down in the cistern again. But he's calling you out because he wants to give you more grace. So therefore, it comes to choices. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So turning from our sin, from our idols, the things that we cling to, can seem like a whole lot of loss, but it's always in our best interest. God gives grace to the humble. The passage here in Proverbs 1 closes with more promises. Look at verse 33. Whoever listens to me, will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster, like on into eternity. So God is calling out to you and me. He's coming after us, not to destroy us, but to give us life, which is amazing. It's amazing grace. Think about it. We all have been Cosmic bullies of one sort or another, vandals, cosmic vandals, cosmic thieves, cosmic self-appointed judges and juries and executioners. And unless you completely reject the fear of the Lord, you see that that's all of us apart from the grace of Jesus. There's no one righteous, no, no not one. You are a self-righteous fool if you think that that's not true of you apart from the grace of Jesus. And what did God do to those kind of people like you and me? What did he do? He did not come in attack mode, making war and crushing all of our foolish rebellion. He isn't lying in wait for your blood, even though he has every right to. He's not trigger happy. He came and plunged into the dark alley of this world that we created and became the ultimate victim of injustice, violently bullied and killed to become our Prince of Peace and the wisdom of God to us. He suffered and paid for all of our foolish injustice, all of our cruelty, all of our selfish ambition. Why? To make peace with you by the blood of the cross. Like if you are not yet a Christian, you can walk out this morning a Christian. Turn. Get out of the cistern, turn and live. Trust Jesus and know forgiveness and cleansing and peace with God and reconciliation and begin to receive the wisdom of living in God's world according to his intended design. Turn from your selfishness and bloodlust and trust in Jesus. Run from your prideful folly. Cling to the cross for mercy and peace with God. He'll give it to you. Neil Plantiga wisely says this. He says, the center of the gospel is not our sin, but our Savior. <laughs> when we own our sin and our folly, call it what it is, like there's so much hope that rises because why? Because something can be done about it. In fact, something has been done about it, <laughs> right? Like confidence in our Savior, not in ourselves, is our escalator out of despair and defeat. Like if sin is the problem, hey, Jesus is really good with dealing with sin. There's actually an answer. So when the great peacemaker makes peace between your guilty soul and a holy God, it brings a kind of security, humility, satisfaction, peace, joy, gratitude, hopefulness that changes us internally and that starts to work its way out. The gospel adorns our lives with peace that passes understanding joy that's not dependent on circumstances, a beautiful and compelling wisdom that we grow in, it's a garland on our heads and pendants around our necks. 
and we begin to walk the wise path of love, even toward enemies. We give life to others rather than plotting to take it, like the gang that's described here in chapter one. We sow peace in relationship rather than nursing grudges and sowing division, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, we still have folly within, right? Like we've got simple evil impulses that we dare not make a truce with. We need to be honest with ourselves and the fear of the Lord side with him against our destructive, twisted impulses. So we begin to live spiritually at conversion when we turn and live and he pours out his spirit on us and changes us. But we also need to turn and live every day of our lives. Repentance and faith is like spiritual breathing for a Christian. Exhale. (sighs) Repent. Breathe. Oxygenate our souls. Trusting in the Lord. So this section is just full of verbs and choices. What are we going to do? We've got to be decisive this morning. Like God is calling you and me to be decisive. It's so easy to get into a pattern like, hey, listen to the sermon. Oh, it was pretty good, you know. Oh, that was interesting. And then what's for lunch? God is actually meeting with us right now and calling us to be decisive. You need to make up your mind. I need to make up my mind. No spiritual procrastination. No wishy-washiness. Actually, one of the characteristics of the simple that wisdom calls to is that they're uncommitted. They're just going with the flow. Don't really know what they want, what they're living for, which opens them up to be influenced down the road of folly and to be conformed to the mold of the world. So if, like, are you going to drift and meander and wander and be a slave of the algorithms, et cetera, et cetera, like, whatever else, or are you going to choose wisely and follow Jesus? So this chapter is like an altar call. So we don't really do altar calls here usually at Bethel, but you know what? Afterwards, if you need to do some business with Jesus and you want to do that quietly in your seat, or if you need to just go home and do that, but if you want to come up here and pray, that's fine. If you want somebody to pray with you, that's fine. Like, this is a come-to-Jesus moment, whether for the first time or for the 574th time. Like, we dare not stick our fingers in our ears. It's to our peril every time. Like, if we turn away from Lady Wisdom, we're going to die. So that, like, you may be, you may have walked in here and you've been drifting. And the Lord wants you to do business with him and make some decisive choices. Because if we turn away from his voice, we will die. Look at the warnings in verses 24 to 32. Last point. Because I've called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also, just like you've laughed at me, I will laugh at your calamity. So if we laugh, again, I hope no one's in a hardened spot like this, but if you are, be warned. If you laugh at God's wisdom, who gets the last laugh? This is soberingly unsentimental. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Like there finally comes a point where, okay. Lady Wisdom is kind, she's gracious, she's generous, she's appealing to all, she's not, but she's not squishy and she's not sentimental. We can't trifle with her. We can't trifle with God. God is not to be trifled with. He can't be manipulated. So listen, God warned, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam and Eve ate, and he didn't waffle and say, well, best out of three. Verse 29, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, Because they would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their ways and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, by their continual repenting of God. And the complacency of fools destroys them. Complacency in Hebrew is actually the word shalom. So 
It's like an ironic usage. Peace, peace, everything's fine. Totally uncommitted, I'm, I'm just, it's a false peace, dangerously false peace, peace. But did you notice the turning away language in verse 32? The key, listen to wisdom's reproof and turn and live. Here, if you turn, I'm sorry, here in verse 32, the simpler killed by their turning away. Kind of like the sad rejection of the rich young ruler to Jesus' like wonderful offer of life and eternal treasure that moth and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. And he saw that, did a cost-benefit analysis, and shrugged his shoulders and just thought loss and walked away. Spurgeon once wrote, unbelief says some other time, but not now. Some other place, but not here. Some other people, but not me. But the Lord is saying, wisely, why will you die? Turn and live. This is not just quaint advice for life as we walk through this book. It's not just, huh, that's interesting. This is not like take it or leave it, you know, self-help tips. This is life and death. Repentance is not a bad word. (laughs) It can have negative connotations sometimes. Certainly there can be a cost with it, like it'll cost us our pride and our selfish short-lived pleasure and selfish comforts and freedoms. But repentance is like the turnstile to life. Or to change the metaphor, it's like opening the spigot of God's grace and mercy to flow into your life. So I hope that none of us are hearing this and are hardened to the point where we're just like, are we done yet? C.S. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Now is not the time to laugh. It's the time to listen. The world, the flesh, and the devil will always offer you a false peace, and it will kill you. Lady Wisdom offers us real life. She wants to pour out her spirit on us if we hear the voice of our infinitely wise and good shepherd, then we turn from whatever whatever we're stuck in and we turn to live so that we know true security, everlasting ease, like is promised in verse 33. Let me close with this quote from Neil Plantinga and um, just encourage us all to prayerfully consider, like, Lord, okay. You sh- in fact, he's probably already shined the spotlight on it. What is it? And what are you going to do about it? Will you deal with it? Turn and live. Neil Plantinga says, if we try to fill our hearts with anything besides the God of the universe, we find that we are overfed but undernourished. And we find that day by day, week by week, year after year, we are thinning down to a mere outline of a human being. So what do you need to turn from? In the words of that old hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee, for thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. For thee, to gain thee, to have more of thee, more of you. Let's pray.